You are listening to the Enormo Cast. So on each episode, I try to say something ridiculous to keep you listening to and considering the commercials on the Enormacast. For example, I might tell you that Joe Kinder once trekked 40 miles across the Arctic sea ice in a cold forged down hoodie, saving the lives of two wounded seal pups he had stuffed in the roomy legs of his vintage Jinko jeans. Or despite marketing's advice about being inclusive, I'll say something completely esoteric like Black Diamond's headlamps are brighter than six cluster winks on a cookie cutter. That's one for you marine biologists. But of course, these are flat-out fabrications. Fake news, if you will. But what's not a lie is that Black Diamond simply makes and sells great gear to keep you safe, warm, and drive, and feeling as slick as Bootsy Collins' middle finger on your next adventure. You need good gear, and the climbers at Black Diamond make good gear. And they have supported the Enormacast since nearly its inception. So please consider that next time you're about to throw down hard cash for that next prized piece of gear. Black Diamond is a proud supporter of the Enormacast. La Sportiva presents Storytime. There once was a little boy named Tommy Caldwell. One day, little Tommy decided he wanted to climb a really big wall, but he couldn't find any shoes to climb the big wall in. So he decided to build his own out of scotch tape, fluffernutter, and a used pair of hand jammies left behind by a couple of euros in Camp 4. When those didn't work, Tommy called the adults at Sportiva and asked them for help. Sportiva came up with the TC Pro, named after little Tommy himself. A shoe so good at big wall climbing that little TC grew up to climb the hardest, biggest big walls in the world in his TC Pros. Then he talked his best friend, teeny tiny Alex H, into trying them, and Alex, well, he became a pretty good climber too. So if you want to be like TC or Tiny A, go to Sportiva.com or your favorite mountain shop and check out a pair of TC Pros, and maybe someday you'll grow up too. The end. Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the uh, Enormo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, the big house. place. Sold That's, it out. That's a big nice. place. You sold it out. I really should. The hell are you doing? I couldn't sleep. I'm checking the ropes. There was a frayed end on your rope, and I'm cutting it out. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes and the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormous Cast. This is your host, Chris Galoose. It is about 10.30 here in Colorado, August 24th, and this is episode 135 of the Enormous Cast, I think. Yep, 135. There, I just stopped, looked at the internet, came back as if time didn't exist. Pretty amazing. On today's show, Arno Ilgner, 
famous in rock climbing circles for his book, Rock Warrior's Way, as well as his training sessions. Awesome deep conversation with Arno. And one thing I found out is that you do pronounce the G in Ilgner. Just just slightly, just hit it. Never had before, but it's weird. I'd met Arno before, I have mutual friends, but you know, I'd never heard anyone mention his last name, which can happen in climbing. You know, I'm sure it happens to Chris Shawarma quite often. People forget to press the W. And of course, Sasha de Guillaume just stopped correcting people altogether. There's a deep enormous cast cut for you. But before we get to that conversation with Arno, I just want to mention that the No Man's Lamb Film Festival is coming up here in Carbondale, Colorado, September 14th to the 17th that weekend. And Aisha Weinhold, its founder, was on my show not too long ago on the uh, show that was recorded at Five Point Film Festival, put out a few episodes ago. So I don't have anything going on with that as the Enormacast. I'm helping out with some sound and some technical stuff. But I do want to give a shout out because Aisha did give me some of her time. So it's a cool festival that's gained traction the last couple of years. It hasn't been around very long. Outdoor films about women. And as she stated on that panel, a lot more are being made by women as well. So cool festival, kind of a unique look at the outdoor industry and a lot of panels going on with that and other events. So if you want to check it out, it's at nomanslandfilmfestival.com for tickets, for schedules. Come to Carbondale. It's beautiful in September. It's beautiful all the time, actually, but it's particularly nice in September. One of these days, I'm going to see that fat check from the chamber for promoting the hell out of Carbondale. But we always need more climbers here to offset all those silly mountain bikers. My God, those backcountry skiers, do they get on my nerves. Okay, let's talk to Arno. Arno's a deep thinker, gentleman, scholar. He wrote a book called The Rock Warrior's Way that's made its rounds over the years. Helped a lot of climbers make kind of the next step past being sort of fearful and shaky on the rock and using their minds as well as their muscles to get up things. I reviewed it years ago for climbing a rock and ice, I can't remember which, and Pulled a lot of great stuff out of it that I think about even to this day, almost every time I go climbing. Arno's got a lot to teach us about being attentive, being less fearful, and in a roundabout way, being safer on the rock. So let's check this one out. Conversation with Arno Ilgner. Hey climbers, that rock that you lovingly caress every weekend is just never going to love you back. Of course, it's never going to suddenly ask you what you're thinking right now either. But devoting even a tenth of that energy into an actual human relationship might be a better bet in terms of love and companionship, no matter what your alpinist friends say. Peter W. Gilroy is here to help. Climber and jewelry maker, Peter can hook you up with just the right gift for that human in your life who just smiles when you get home late from the crag or who is still belaying you even though you're falling lower and lower on your proj. Inspired by the rocks we climb and the mountains we love, Peter's jewelry and accessories might be just the thing to convince your significant other that you're not an obsessive crazy person in love with inanimate objects. So go to peterwgilroy.com and enter Enormo at checkout for a discount on art you can wear and to help the Enormacast. The thing you're most known for, I think, in the greater sort of climbing world um, outside of your friends and and the people you climb with is the Rock Warriors way, the book, the method, the idea. So let's just kind of start there with your personal story in terms of how you arrived at this place where we now kind of associate that with you and also you instruct 
Um, you have this organization around it. And, mm-hmm. uh, but how did you get there? Where did, where did this enter your purview as a climber or even just as a person? Maybe it happened before climbing. Well, it didn't happen before climbing. Well, maybe the, the mental training part certainly uh, happened before climbing, but I wasn't really aware of it. But I, I'm starting to dig back into the kind of psychology that I had way back before climbing and how that has been a part of my uh, my path. But it really, I mean, I started climbing when I was 18 in Tennessee and loved it the first time I went climbing. At the time, I was uh, interested in music and thought that I was going to have a music career. But when um, these two friends took me climbing, I left behind music and I actually followed one of the fellows uh, that introduced me to climbing to the same university and into the same uh, major of study and into ROTC. Okay. <laughs> so we were doing everything together. But it was, that was around 18 years old, of course. But it was when I turned around 40 years old, that midlife crisis area, where I decided to do something that would align my career with what I love to do, which was climbing. Because up until that point, I was doing all kinds of different jobs. Uh, initially, I was in the military because I was in ROTC, so I had that obligation to fulfill. And then after I got out of that, I went into geology, which is what I studied. Uh, but that was in Wyoming, and Wyoming is known for a boom-bust cycle with the oil industry. And, and so it busted, and, and so I had to look for other careers, and it was just a combination of uh, hodgepodge careers that uh, finally brought me back to Tennessee and working with my father and brother in an industrial tool business. The critical part about when we become in that midlife uh, age area around 40 is we've lived long enough to realize uh, if we have lived a shallow life. (laughs) And what I mean by shallow is Mm -hmm. like uh, we're not really digging deep into uh, gaining meaning from the work that we're doing and, and then translating that meaning to others. I was climbing quite a bit uh, at that time. This was like mid-80s, okay? I was climbing a lot in North Carolina and Tennessee, and I was putting up some climbs that my friends and local climbers thought were like death routes or required a lot of mental focus. And so I got to be known for someone that could deal with fear. And then uh, right at this time when I was feeling this frustration in my work, I was also being approached by some climbers to see if I could help them with their fears. So I started uh, researching about mental training, and I realized that I enjoyed studying about mental training as much as I enjoyed climbing. So I, I made a decision to start developing a method, and then I slowly worked my way out of the family business, which was really unfortunate. Uh, in other words, I could kind of reduce the number of days and hours that I was working there as, as I was doing more with the mental training and the teaching. So that's... Right. That's, so it wasn't like financial cold turkey. Right. To try to get <laughs> something else started. Exactly. Oh, that's yeah. excellent. Okay. Well, let me actually circle back to some of the things you talked about just, just now. You know, in that, that pre-midlife crisis, quote unquote, as a climber, what kind of climber were you uh, in terms of you know, I think it was the era. I mean, there really wasn't sport climbing yet, at least in the States. But, you know, what was the yeah. things that you pursued or were really interesting to you? And did you travel the world? Did you, did you climb out west? Did you do all the things that climbers do? 
I, I did travel quite a bit, mm-hmm. uh, and it was mo- all trad climbing at the time. Uh, it was right in the in the mid '80s when sport climbing was becoming uh, on the scene, mm-hmm. and it was right at that time when I moved from Wyoming back to Tennessee. So I was doing sport climbing, trad climbing, not so much bouldering, but what I really enjoyed was multi-pitch climbing. Okay. That's what brought me always over to North Carolina. Is okay. Locally, that's uh, where you had to go for multi-pitch climbing. Sure. And so, you know, this draw that you found yourself in, I guess, at some point towards what, you, you know, these scary routes and, and putting up new routes that, that require all of that, you, is there anything, you know, as you, I guess maybe as you circled back and started examining yourself in terms of this mental training that you were looking at, uh, what were the aspects of your personality or maybe your life at the time that was drawing you to that kind of climbing? Because it does, even even then, it's it's always set people apart a little bit in the climbing world, uh, whether or not you can, can tackle, especially as first ascents, mm-hmm. uh, these difficult routes. What you're asking is... Uh will make me it requires me to dig go back to 18 my late teen years you mm-hmm. know and like i was saying before it's like uh my psychology as i was a teenager and going into adulthood uh i need to point out some things there is like uh, i have a twin brother and when when we were growing up uh we were had difficulty finding ourselves like our own identity. And so uh, we kind of developed this inferiority complex, you know, that, uh, that we uh, didn't feel like we were equal and worthwhile to uh, our peers. And so we dragged that into our adulthood. And when I found climbing, I actually found something that I was really skilled at because I had some natural ability and, and my, tendency to be more intuitive and cause me to take action more. That's a real strength for being a more intuitive climber. Uh, there are weaknesses also, <laughs> but, but that was a strength that allowed me to take action and do things that uh, other people thought were bold and, uh, and they interpreted as uh, being able to deal with fear. But really, I was just manifesting my own psychology the way uh, in the way I was right you know so it wasn't until a lot later that I had to I started digging into that and and on also my ego on the limitations of that and how I was out of balance I was really just climbing toward what was comfortable for me and that gave me a sense of identity and equalness to other people you you mentioned ego you know it also sets you apart in a lot of ways and and, and another person and maybe you at the time found this this superiority in it to absolutely peers, right? right and so I, and you know unconsciously i craved that you know mm-hmm. because i we all have this desire to feel worthwhile and to feel equal to others or to be able to do something that makes us feel valid you know so i latched on to this one thing that uh, i could do well mm-hmm. didn't really know why and didn't really understand the limitations to that either and structured my identity all around that. Right. So as you were going through this this phase of climbing climbing dangerous things, not really sure why. I mean, did you get yourself into trouble? Uh, you 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 appear to be in one piece, relatively speaking, in front of me. I don't know how many 
internal broken bones you have or anything like that but did you get yourself into trouble did this ego uh push yourself too far ever or did you always seem to have it under control well no i didn't have it always under control but uh i've been fortunate in a sense that i haven't broken any bones in climbing uh i have tweaked my ankle recently you know about five or six years ago but uh but really when when you look at having this intuitive approach to climbing mm-hmm. that uh, allowed me to really engage, then I was also falling a lot because of that. But the benefit of that is it allowed me to actually gain falling experience, you know, and, and then when you gain that experience, it helps you deal with those kinds of consequences when they, when I do find myself in over my head. Uh, what do you think would have been, I mean, maybe this is a little bit too out there a question, but you know, you found climbing and it, and it was this thing that, that lit you up and you were decent at it and it looked like this path forward. Is this a case where there would have been, I mean, the music was something that you were into, uh, mm-hmm. but without climbing, is, do you ever think about who you would be at the age 40 without having found climbing? I think I would be totally confused. Oh, really? I really do because... I was only interested in music because my parents are European and they, especially my mother, has a really strong uh, classical background. And so uh, I did, we, my twin brother and I, we really didn't know what we wanted to do. So like I think a lot of teenagers, they're just looking for something that either their parents direct them to or that they feel like they're skilled at or that they have uh, good grades in, in their high school so I think uh, at 40, I would have just been totally confused mm-hmm. because there was kind of a ongoing thought process in my third, well, in my mid to late 20s when I was living in Wyoming. And that was that I felt a total confusion about what I was supposed to be doing. This was right after I lost my job as a geologist. You know, it's like my whole life was kind of laid out for me. Uh, once I found climbing, you know, I followed uh, my friend to Tennessee Tech and I followed him into geology, followed him in ROTC. Uh, I actually uh, was there for three years and then transferred to CU in Boulder uh, because of the climbing. And so that was when I started breaking away from uh, sort of a dependency on following him and started following my own, uh, what I felt like I needed to do for me. But then after graduating, you know, I had an obligation in the Army. And then after getting out of the Army, I went into geology. And, and then when I lost my job in geology, I didn't really know what to do. So right then, I felt like totally lost. And it just permeated uh, the rest of the time, my time in Wyoming. And then also when I moved back to Tennessee. So I just really felt lost mm-hmm. until... Uh, even working with my brother and father in the industrial tool business, yeah, it was a family business, and there was some uh, connect, a lot of connection there. But it was also super frustrating because it was hard to separate business from family relationships. Mm. Um, and it wasn't until I actually made it that decision to find a way to create a career in climbing that my life started having some grounding and some meaning. Mm-hmm. And how old are you now? Sixty-two. Okay. So that was a while back. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. It's, it's funny because you're, you're talking about this career in music and now you found this career in climbing. Like both of those things are, 
are really unlikely to work out in a mm-hmm. sense. I mean, going into music, right? You know, that's that's a pretty <laughs> difficult way to make a living, and then mm-hmm. somehow you manage to you know do the other impossible, which is without becoming a professional climber, which didn't exist, you know, when you were uh, when it, I was starting this, yeah. yeah you found a way to make a living in climbing. So good for you. <laughs> well, yeah, you have to understand, and you probably know this, that it's still, you know, it's not like we're making money hand over fist. You know? Certainly, yeah. But it, it can be sustainable. Right, right. Let's get into the Rock Warrior, or the Warrior's Way, the Rock Warrior's Way. If you are going to give me or us, the listener, the the sort of pitch, you know, of, of, of what it's about and maybe what you think its benefits are, what would that be? Can we start there? Yes. Uh, I'll start first by saying it's not just about falling, <laughs> okay? Because it, it's, uh, it's become known as, you know, helping climbers overcome fear of falling. Okay. And it certainly does address that, but it's much, much deeper than that. So uh, the essence of it is mental training. And there are many different ways you can do mental training and study it and present it and teach it. Uh, there can be more cognitive thinking based approaches, you know, like positive thinking, affirmations, and things like that. Uh, the warrior's way is about awareness and attention, specifically attention in the moment on whatever the task is. Mm-hmm. And so that's the that's kind of the litmus test that everything that we teach and talk about and do and have students do needs to meet that litmus test. Anything that distracts attention from, from the moment, we need to become aware of it and diminish those, uh, those distractions. Mm-hmm. And so it's awareness-based, it's uh, attention-based, incremental learning process-based, and digging into the motivation that uh, underlies all of that understanding how ego can get in there, how different kinds of motivation can get in there and distract attention. So we need to become aware of all of those distractors before we can get better at focusing attention in a moment. Okay. And, and specifically to climbing, if I approached you and I did talk about this fear factor, or if I approached you and just said, hey, I want to become a better climber, uh, what can you do for me, or what can the, the, this this method do for me? What would be your response to someone in terms of that? Well, the response would, you know, it would be helpful to have, you know, take them through a questionnaire, watch uh, some videos of them climbing, or go out and watch them climbing, go climbing with <clears throat> with them. Uh, but uh, it would be looking for how well they use their attention. Mm-hmm. There are basically two ways that we need to use our attention in climbing or anything else. Uh, We need to focus attention in our mind to do critical thinking processes, like what we would do on a stopping point on a climb or especially when we're on sighting. You know, stop and think about that that mini risk ahead, like where the protection is, fall consequence, our plan, things like that. But then there's another way of focusing attention where it's in the somatic activities of the body when you climb between stopping points. So we work on helping the the athlete or the student to focus their attention more completely in the body on their breathing, their movement, where they're looking with their eyes or maintaining eye contact, things like that. You mentioned earlier kind of in passing that you were found yourself to be a very intuitive climber. Yes. And then 
you said, yeah, there's pluses and there's minuses or drawbacks to that. Could you elaborate on what it means in your your mind to be an intuitive climber and how that mm-hmm. can be good and bad? Yes. Uh, so I, I see that there are two basic tendencies that we have, intuitive or analytical. Okay. Intuitive is more feeling-based and more body-based, where analytical is more thinking-based and mind-based. So the strengths for an intuitive climber is taking action, engaging the body and taking that action like I was doing on those you know, scary routes that I was putting up. Uh, the analytical climber uh, goes through critical thinking process that's necessary for make sure you're taking an appropriate risk. Uh, so that's the strength there. So as an intuitive climber, I was lacking doing the critical thinking and getting myself into trouble, whereas an analytical climber would have the opposite tendency, kind of stall out at uh, rest stances, get lost in overthinking and not taking action. So your your sort of approach then is a balance of a those balance, two, yes. Right? Because when you were just talking, uh, I think, you know, even in my climbing, there's been this arc and the youthful climber was the intuitive climber that mm-hmm. probably got into trouble at times. Um, and now I'm, I'm finding myself almost like I've arced over into this super analytic climber that talks myself out of things way more often than I, mm-hmm. than I once did. And do you find that to be, a normal arc in someone, you know, who the two of us actually have been climbing. Uh, you've been climbing longer, but I started at, at 18 as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, is, does that seem like a normal arc? I've always felt like it kind of is in a sense that you become a little more afraid <laughs> as you yeah. get older. Or I always said as it, you're afraid, but now I realize that in a lot of ways, yeah, you're just more analytical. Maybe you understand consequences better. I don't know. You mean when you get older, you yeah. just get more analytical? I think that uh, we're, we're sort of born with a certain tendency, and I don't think that changes. I think what you're describing is just uh, you've, as you get older, you just realize your mortality more. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right, it's right, like right. You, real, you have more responsibilities. You've taken some falls, maybe some falls that you got hurt on, and, and we just um, we realize how fragile we really are. Right. <laughs> but I think... Uh, if we if we come into this world more in, uh, analytical or more intuitive, that's it's going to be a part of our our kind of psychology or our essence throughout our lives. And I think it's really important to become aware of that which one of those we are and to find a way to balance out you know with the opposite. And with this this uh, this training again, as someone who who maybe would approach you for some training. Is there a point where you make it implicit how this expands into your everyday life? Or um, is that something that you kind of feel like just happens in terms of once you get done with teaching someone how it applies to climbing, it's going to kind of filter out? Because it, it sounds to me, and I know that there's some of these philosophies have been around for a long time in terms of just dealing Absolutely. with anything. Yep. And, uh, you know, I, I was working on my car all morning uh, thinking about, doing this interview and thinking about working on my car and, you know, realizing that the times when I'd rip my knuckles open, I'd lost focus. I'd lost attention. And, and so I, I was like this whole morning, I just was thinking about what am I going to ask Arno and, and how does it apply right now? It applies almost the same other than the fact that 
you know, the threat of me getting killed while working on my car is, is pretty minimal, although it's there. Right. Um, if I don't pay attention to the way the jack stands leaning or whatnot, but, uh, yeah, so it, it seems like a bigger philosophy that, that you've, you've distilled a bit to climbing, but maybe yeah. your intention is people walk away with a, a set of skills for life. Well, the, the intention from the very beginning, which was in the mid-90s, was that this material was uh, much bigger than just climbing. So, uh, in fact, the only reason I called the, the book The Rock Warrior's Way is because I intended to write a book for the general public called The Warrior's Way, which I'm actually in process of doing now. And so, uh, I've, I've gotten emails from people that have read Rock Warrior's Way, and they, they tell me uh, many times that, it helps their climbing, but uh, it helps them really in their larger context of their lives. So, um, so I get feedback from people reading the book in the clinics. Uh, we don't really bridge it that much to regular life, uh, but we do a little bit. Like um, one of the things that seems to come up is uh, focusing our attention on what we can't control as opposed to what we can control. So if you think about uh, motivation, for instance, we can be motivated toward achieving a goal and then uh, have attention on uh, f uh, being afraid that we're not going to be accomplish it, accomplishing it uh, you know, on a certain timetable. And we're, uh, we're essentially projecting our attention into the future on things we can't control. Whereas we uh, work on shifting their attention and their motivation toward processes that happen in the moment on things that they can control. And so sometimes we'll make these bridges to life, like say, uh, what's, uh, what are some examples of how you focus on what you can't control in life? And, you know, don't just, uh, when you untie from the rope here in the clinic, you know, forget about all of this, find a way to uh, focus on things you can control in the greater aspect of your lives. With the climbing and with the clinics, you know, we don't want to give up every single secret right now, but what would you suggest or can you sort of put a framework if I'm, if I'm out on lead and I'm scared and, you know, whether it's a consequential fall or if I just in my mind, it's a really consequential fall, which can be one in the same thing in, in, mm -hmm. in terms of your reality in the moment. Is there maybe like a couple things you can just toss out right now that you think people would could use would could be helpful use. if i if i'm standing there right now and and i'm starting to kind of shake off my holds yeah uh one would be uh and we kind of mentioned it a little bit two different ways of using attention so to absolutely you know commit attention either to stop rest and think or go okay like don't be in between commit to stop do the critical thinking you need to do rest as much as you need to rest but then when it's time to climb, commit attention to the body and move. You know, so uh, a lot of climbers, I think, because their climbing is going against gravity, uh, just climb too slowly. And it tends to just mix thinking and doing all together, mind and body all together. And so one practice that can be really helpful is just to, you know, where are you? Are you do you need to think? All right, stop, rest and think. When you're done with that, then commit to going. So instead of being in between, so that's one thing. Mm -hmm. Another would be uh, if if you're leading sport or trad and you're afraid of falling, then uh, you probably need to uh, practice some falling. And 
the uh, the big thing about falling is that we need to make sure we're practicing in a way that we're going to be present for it and not just practicing to get it over with. And so it kind of brings us back to motivation because we have this strong motivation toward achievement and comfort. It's, our society is just set up that way and we adopt that unconsciously. You know, advertisers, you know, they have pretty models and uh, to get us, entice us to buy. They have like three easy steps to enlightenment or something like that, you know, just feeding into our comfort-based motivation, you know, and, and achieving things that are outside of ourselves. So in falling, we can fall into that same kind of uh, motivation where we want to be comfortable and we want to get over our fear of falling. And so we we end up taking you know, falls that are not appropriate, you know, like too big of a fall and we tense up and sort of to get it over with instead of doing incremental falling practice, paying attention to being present during the fall and building regularly on that. Like, in other words, we, instead of doing falling just once in a while, we could find a way to integrate it into our warm up so that we do it as it's a, as part of our climbing. It's not just something that's off to the side but we see it as something we need to integrate. And if we do it incrementally, we can actually enjoy that process. Right, 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 right. Because I, I think about the, every time I've, you know, tried to talk someone into taking a fall, it's not, it's not like that. It's more that they, they finally end up letting go, terrified, and they live. But yeah, it almost, I've noticed that it almost feeds the fear of falling because of the tenseness with which they did it. And is that kind of what you're talking about? Like a one or two practice falls after someone cajoles you, you know, for 20 minutes to let go isn't getting you anywhere in a sense. It's actually, it's actually worse, getting maybe. you worse. Right. Yeah. And let me explain why. Falling is a skill. Okay. So if you're going to learn a skill, that means that you go through it and your brain creates neural networks to learn that skill so that at some point it can become automatic in how you respond to it. Well, if we're, fall if we're practicing falling to get it over with and we're tensing and holding our breath and grabbing a rope during those falls, then we're creating those kinds of neural networks. So doing an incremental learning process, you know, incremental falls, where we pay attention to where we're looking during the fall, how we're breathing, uh, our body falling posture and we get that right. And then we we're in other words, we're practicing with quality. Once we get that right, then we can take a little bit longer fall, a little longer fall. And we're constantly paying attention to the quality of that engagement. And what happens then is that the students start perceiving that the falls actually last longer than they did before. And it's not just because the falls are longer, it's because attention can expand or contract based on how stressed or comfortable we are to the particular situation we're in. And that's important, isn't it? Like if, if our attention can expand, then during that fall, then we're going to be more attentive during the fall and be able to respond to it better and keep ourselves safer. Well, yeah, as you're talking, I, I just think about the fact that, and I've always wondered about this, and if, if there's something odd about my brain but obviously it sounds like there's not because yeah the when i finally fall off something if i'm scared uh which i can fall sometimes and not be scared but 
as an old school track climber, I still am mostly scared when I fall. It's a, it's a, it's almost like this blank time and I'm on the end of the rope. Right. And I've always like hoped that I reacted properly, but it was a never, almost never is it a conscious reaction because I'm, I'm gone for like that split second. Do you know what I mean? It's like I've, my brain, I don't, I can't remember ever witnessing like things flying by or necessarily like hitting the rock until I hit it. Right. You know, if I bounce off or just a softball or whatever, but it's like this blank time. That's the typical response. You know, it's like attention freezes, you know, it's like, um, fear is like, um, well, survival fear is like fight, flight, or freeze. Mm-hmm. Okay. And when we're falling, generally, if we're falling and we don't have a lot of falling experience, then we're engaging a situation that's outside of our comfort zone. And so then we're going to, our attention is going to go toward one of those ways of responding. Well, you can't fight or flee when you're falling because you're engaged already in that activity. So we freeze, and so attention just uh, freezes until it's over. And, and that's really when we can injure ourselves, you know, not only because we're not present for it, but also because we're, we're not uh, positioning our body for the impact into the rock. Our belayer is probably not experienced in giving a cushioned catch, so we get a hard catch into the wall. And so it just... Um, that just exponentially increases the chance of injury. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that I could probably train myself out of this state at this yeah, point? Yeah, or I could. Yeah, or you could train me. <laughs> I, that, that's what I, what I meant. <laughs> the thing, the reason I say that is because there's, uh, the mind is comfort-based, achievement-motivated, okay? Mm-hmm. And... It can be really helpful to have a coach to notice when that impacts the, the particular thing that you're wanting to learn so it can help make sure you're redirecting your attention in a helpful way. Uh-huh. So you mentioned when we started this or when we started talking about the, the Warrior's Way is that it's not just about falling, and yet we just spent you know 10 minutes talking about that. So... The getting comfortable with the idea of falling, does that then help you stay on the rock in a sense? Well, think about it. Okay. Um, if, we're, if we have a fear of falling, then our attention is going to be distracted from that. You know, we only have 100% attention. We don't have 200% or 90%. If we want to look at it mathematically, we have 100% attention. So any fear that we have, in this case, we're talking about fear of falling, distracts part of that 100% attention away from the task of climbing. So, uh, yes, you know, if you're, if you're committing to climbing and it's going to be challenging for you and you get closer and closer to that edge where the possibility of falling is there, part of that attention is going to get distracted. I mean, literally, at times, thinking about just getting further and further away from the gear, above the gear, mm-hmm. you know, it's like every step, then you're in the future this future fall possibility. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, like I, I can just feel it almost to where my palms could start sweating right now. Just r- knowing that feeling of each step above the piece, you're 
your attention is about the future of a possible fall versus what these holds feel like and whether I'm Absolutely, calm. Absolutely, right? And that feeling too of, of snapping the rope into a piece at your face all of a sudden and flush, it's all gone. All that, all that yeah. fear and all of a sudden you're in that, you're on those holds again. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not really asking a question here. I'm just sort of yeah, it's like you're, you're feeling my own personal version of what you're talking about. Well, what you're doing is you're, you're kind of bringing... Uh, visualizing what we're talking about and bringing it to your conscious awareness. Like what is going on when I'm climbing above my gear, you know, and you're recalling an experience, right? And then what is going on when I clip into that piece? Ah, no fear disappears, you know, so. The holds got bigger. No, I'm not sweating and I'm not as pumped and instantly it's crazy. Yeah. And that, that's why one of the foundations of this material is developing awareness. We need to understand, become aware of what is going on in our body mind when we're in these kinds of situations. You still are instructing these classes. Plus you have, uh, you have trained instructors all over the country that are working with this program. We have uh, eight instructors in the U.S. and three abroad. Okay. Yes. That's not that many, actually. It's not that no, many. No. But, you know, you got to take it a little at a time. Well, and I, you know, it's like, it, it feels as though to become someone who can instruct this in a pretty authentic way, uh, it might take a special type of climber a little bit. Well, there's a lot that goes into mm-hmm. it and uh, a lot of training also. So it's... Uh, it's it's a bit of an involved process, yes. So back to your personal journey with this, if you want to call it that. You became an instructor about twenty years ago, uh, mm-hmm. with with this method after researching it and 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 you know refining it. How have you changed as a climber and maybe as a person, having moved into this world of instructing other people, where you you know you were kind of living for yourself up to that point. Uh, has that changed you as a climber? Has it changed you as a person? Studying the material has certainly changed me as a climber and as a person. And then that's uh, also been additional changes as I train trainers because uh, you get other people in there that have their own perspectives on how to teach and their own personalities. And so it, it's helpful for me to be able to see the limitations of my own view and perspective and uh, learn from them. Uh, But how the material has changed me, uh, first of all, it's changed me climbing-wise. In the mid-90s, I climbed my hardest, okay? And then I was focusing more on developing this material. But then in like 2012... I climbed the same difficulty that I did when I, in the mid-90s. So it was, a, uh, in the sense of climbing, it was a validation to me that uh, I, the material was helping me be able to climb hard again. Okay? But more importantly was just uh, what it did for me as a person, and that is um, realizing that, that my ego and how it was my identity was all tied to this uh, putting up these scary routes. I was able to start seeing that as I was just staying in my comfort zone. You know, I wasn't really looking at uh, my ego as a way uh, in the limitations of that uh, and then challenging it and finding a way to move beyond it. 
and again, it's a, this material is awareness based, right? So, um, when when I first started uh, researching and teaching, you know, you develop a lot of intellectual knowledge, you know. But it wasn't until I I said, you know, Arno, you need to live this material, not just you know talk about it and teach it. So I started really looking in into my life and how I was um, using my attention, how my ego would uh, present itself in limiting ways, uh, what my motivation was. And so uh, that was when I really started becoming more self-aware of how these limitations were manifesting themselves in my climbing and in my life and starting to be able to take some actions, you know, to move beyond that. Mm-hmm. And personally, is there any aspect of applying them to yourself or applying these ideas that you found particularly difficult to overcome, you know, in terms of commiserating maybe with some of your students who find a, a block in here that, that's, that's troubling? Is there anything you can point to that just you knew it intellectually, you read it, it made sense to you, but... Personally, it was a, a, a difficult step to get through. Uh, yeah, tons. <laughs> you know? And um, one would be, let's say, frustration. Okay. Frustration, and I know that uh, your listeners are, might have totally different perspectives about frustration, but I'm going to put mine out there. Frustration is wanting something for nothing. When we get frustrated when we're not progressing as quickly as the mind thinks it should or when we don't achieve the goal as quickly as we should. But if you think about this in the context of a rock climb, you know, the rock, the rock doesn't care, you know, if you climb it or not, right? It's an inanimate. So we are the part of the situation that needs to develop our skills to learn to rise to the level of the challenge of the climb, Right. So when we get frustrated, essentially, we don't want to do that work. We don't want to look at what is sh- uh, shutting us down and be curious about that and focus on learning. So I started uh, when I started really looking at my own frustration in my life and in my climbing, I, di- I really didn't have frustration in climbing. Uh, had, I had other things that manifested themselves, and we can get into that in a moment, but uh, in my life, uh, frustration would present itself in all kinds of ways, either, you know, interacting with someone else or something as simple as, uh, you know, your computer not booting up properly. You know, like you might say, well, what the hell is going on here? You know, well, something's going on. Why don't you be curious and figure it out, Arno? You know, so all, being able to catch all of these little times when I got frustrated and say, stop, focus, focus on solving the problem. Something is going on here. What is it? It's been extremely helpful for me to, first of all, be at more peace in in my life and being. But it also helps me focus on problem solving more. And actually, you get to the point where you can kind of flow with the situation more organically. Mm-hmm. And this is um, the kind of material that I'm working on right now, called developing a free mind. And it has everything to do with accepting situations as they are so that our attention can flow as the situation changes, you know? And so that's, uh, again, it brings us back to that core point of this material attention in a moment on a task. And 
attention needs to flow as the situation changes, and it's not going to if we don't accept situations as they are. Mm-hmm. And it has nothing to do with, uh, well, you know, if you if you just accept situations as they are, it means that you're okay with them not being the way you like them. It's got nothing to do with that. Right. You you accept them as as they are, so that you you can see them clearly and take action. Mm-hmm decisive action so i'm going to push you on the you just made a comment uh about frustrations in your climbing was that i said that uh i really don't get frustrated in my climbing i I probably did some years and years ago Mm -hmm. but i i don't get frustrated in climbing anymore at all okay but i do rush okay okay so climbers can either tend to stall out and that's the more analytical climber or a rush through the stress, which is the more intuitive climber. And, and I'm the more intuitive right. climber, you're right? Still, so, you're still working with that. Yeah. yeah. And even today when I was climbing, you know, I, I was on something challenging and, you know, I could uh, sense that I was wanting to rush through. And, and then when it happens, you know, I tense up more. And so I, since I know that's my tendency, again, awareness, then I can make sure I place my feet well uh, grab the holes without over gripping and keeping my my focus moment to moment as I'm climbing. Mm-hmm. So uh, being aware of whatever the limitation is, so that you, I can catch myself whenever I fall out of that. Right. So again, working with the with the warrior's way, and you keep kind of hinting at and and talking a little bit about new material or trying to, again. My question about broadening this outside a little bit of climbing you've been working on that as well i have been working on it and uh i'm actually uh like i said before working on a book uh that introduces this material to the general public and working on a a workshop developing a workshop for the non-climber and and so i like i think i said a moment ago it's like this material that i'm working on now is called developing a free mind and it essentially, if we know anything about the flow state or being in the zone, it's when uh, everything comes together so that we flow as the situation is changing. You know, whether that's a rock climb or skiing or doing a crazy stunt, you know, with motorcycles, uh, we absolutely have to be in the flow in order to do things like that. But what if we could be in a flow state like that? And maybe it's a little bit different kind of a flow state, but still we're flowing with our life stressors day to day. That's what I really want to teach to the general public. And so developing a free mind has to do with being intentional with how you use your attention. And that comes from the falling in commitment material that we've been teaching all these years. But then uh, some very specific intellectual inquiry into motivation and ego and self-worth and having an intellectual structure for understanding how those can interfere or help us. Uh, And so from that intellectual understanding, then we can start doing practices, like which is, again, bridging from intellectual to experience, having practices that we do throughout our day so that we can start transitioning just intellectually knowing about something like motivation to experientially living our lives in a way that is in sync with our intellectual understanding of motivation and diminished ego and so forth. 
So this material that I'm working on has these three components, intentional processes on how to focus attention, intellectual inquiry, and then another piece that's called situational awareness. Basically becoming more aware of what's going on internally in the mind and in the body. So meditation exercises can be helpful for doing that, you know, recognizing thoughts and redirecting attention. Different body-oriented drills can help develop more internal awareness of how we carry our bodies around during the day or in climbing because we, we all tend to uh, go around in a bit of a startle pattern, you know, because of all of the stressors that we have in life. There are a lot of pressures on being able to do what you're supposed to do at work, you know, and, and to meet obligations, you know, for other relationships like our families. And so we kind of, our, our, our head kind of crunches down and we absorb, uh, uh, adopt sort of a, a concave posture, our breath gets shallow. And so we can do some body-oriented practices that uh, can give us some awareness about how we're carrying our bodies and then we pay attention to that throughout the day uh, so that uh, we don't uh, walk around with that kind of a startle pattern right so instead of instead of having our time set aside whether we go to yoga or or we Mm -hmm. go climbing maybe and that's the time that we're relaxed and we're we're you know thinking about our bodies and i think most people have those times and they think of them as separate. Right. So I'm going to go climbing this weekend, then the five days in between, I'm going to be a stressed out mess, but I'll get rid of it when I go climbing. Right. And is the philosophy that you are mindful of these things all the time? All the time. And what, what you're describing is uh, it's pointing toward motivation again. Right. Right. We need to really look at our motivation, you know, and if we're, if we go to yoga practice or we go climbing and then the rest of the week we're a mess, <laughs> then it's like we're not really uh, finding a way to integrate that practice into our lives. So a process-based motivation means that we do practices for their own sake. Practices for their own sake, not because it's good for us or because it's going to create some end result for us. So if we, if we want to do a certain amount of meditation or a certain amount of Tai Chi or yoga, then we, can, we do that because it makes us feel alive, you know, day to day to day. And then we can take aspects of how we move in yoga and Tai Chi and then say, okay, I'm going to walk around with a body that re- resembles those, what they teach in those disciplines. Mm-hmm. I'm not just leaving it behind. And when I go, when I go climbing, I'll also uh, make sure that I'm using my body and my mind in a way that is uh, most optimal. You know, so we make the practices something that gives us a feeling of being more alive and engaged in life in a more complete way instead of because it's good for us and wanting to uh, achieve some sort of end result that then when we achieve that, oh, I'm going to be happy and that sort of thing. (laughs) I'm going to be relaxed next week on Wednesday. That's what I'm going to be relaxed. Not now. We really need to look at motivation for everything we do in our lives because... We can get into uh, these 
uh, ruts where we're constantly uh, working towards some future goal. And even when we get it, we want the ego wants another one. It's not satisfied. Right. And, and we get this into this striving over and over again, and we never really live in the present moment. And so uh, these practices that we do need to be something that we do for their own sake, not sure. for some future benefit. So when you started talking about this uh, and, you know, you said turning 40 or about then doing research into some of these ideas and now you're working on another book, what were some of the influences for these ideas? Because I mentioned, you know, they've been around, they, they, there's sort of uh, Buddhism mixed in here, at least in a lot of things you've been saying about awareness and presence. And mm -hmm. um, so what are some of the influences, just real quick, that got sure. you here and are continuing to influence you. If somebody wanted to go, you know, back before uh, Rock Warrior and, and those sorts of things. Sure. Well, in the back of both Rock Warrior's Way and Espresso Lessons, uh, there is a, a book list. Maybe maybe there isn't one in Espresso Lessons, but but there there's some books in the uh, references in the back of of those books that give some insight if people want to know where some of the areas that I that I studied, but my goal was to, to research widely, you know, everything from Eastern to Western philosophy, self-help, business books, spirituality, religion, just anything that drew my attention and interest. But uh, to give you some specifics, in the beginning, uh, I was really influenced by Castaneda. Okay, Carlos Castaneda wrote about 12 books, eight of them are more prominent, but in those books, they, they get a lot of bad press about being about drugs, about peyote and all of that. But if people would read those books and pay attention to what Don Juan is saying to Carlos, then they would become much more aware of what Don, Don Juan's uh, intention is in teaching Carlos. And that is about awareness and attention and intention. And the thing that, that uh, Don Juan knew as a, as a teacher is that uh, you have to in sometimes trick the student into learning about what you want them to learn. Because as students, we come into training with limited perspectives, obviously, right? Because we have something we need to learn. But what Don Juan knew is that he needed to capture Carlos's attention so that he could then trick him into learning about knowledge. And Carlos was interested in medicinal plants. That's what he wanted to write his thesis on at UCLA. So uh, Don Juan knew that, and then through teaching him about medicinal plants, he tricked him into learning about attention and awareness. So that was a big influence in the beginning. And then others like uh, Dan Millman, uh, Wayne Dyer, Deepak Chopra, but... Mm -hmm. And recently, maybe I can refer to some more recent ones, uh, I was really intrigued about uh, particularly 17th century samurai in Japan, uh, Yago Munanori or Miyamoto Masashi, and the, the kind of uh, Zen Buddhism influences that they brought into what they taught in swordsmanship. Uh, so that was uh, really interesting and insightful. And then more recently, some trauma books, you know, on... Uh, why, what kind of trauma events can influence how we 
dis- distract our attention and the kind of behaviors that we uh, drag from childhood into adulthood and how limiting those can be. And also, you know, if you come, you know, have trauma as an adult, like uh, veterans coming back with PTSD and things like that, I was really interested in what kind of impact, you know, trauma has on us. And particularly looking back for myself into my childhood and what could have, what kind of trauma events could I have been exposed to that created this inferiority complex, you know, that my brother and I, you know, seem to adopt and, and carry into our adulthood. Mm-hmm. So really research widely, and I still read uh, every day, you know, to continually learn more about uh, all of this material. Do you think you could have or would have arrived at the developing a free mind without the climbing? No, because uh, climbing was a medium that I understood and enjoyed. And it's, it's very in-your-face kind of, a, of an uh, activity. You go against gravity, all the effort that you put into it comes back. It will tell you if you're making decisions poorly. It will reveal your motivation. It will show your weaknesses. It'll show your strengths. And so uh, if I was engaged in some other activity that I really enjoyed, then yes, maybe that would be would have been something that could have helped me develop this material. But climbing is what I enjoyed, but it also... It is a very different kind of sport than gravity sports like downhill skiing and kayaking and things like that. So there's something really unique, I think, about climbing that helps understand this material. And then from that understanding, like testing it in climbing can help bridge it to uh, other sports and other parts of our lives to understand it uh, and how it impacts in those areas. Yeah, it feels like it's like a very good laboratory in a sense. It is. Because it's a very immediate feedback, intense experience, and, and it can have consequences. I mean, we, we mostly go climbing and, and have no problems, but it can have consequences. So it just occurred to me while you were talking just how, yeah, it becomes like a very intense laboratory to, to try out some of these ideas mm-hmm. and you know the things we deal with in, in everyday life are just so much more vague in their feedback to us yes. than when we're climbing you fall off you fall off but it's ha- you're done like you're hanging on the rope and other places in just maybe it's not so immediate or not just a vague feedback of maybe i succeeded here or i don't really know or but yeah it feels really good to uh, to get that immediate feedback with climbing yeah, if we pay attention, sure, right? If we so that we can become aware, and so uh, the the thing that's another thing that's really cool about climbing, as far as understanding this material, is that the rock doesn't care if we can climb it or not. So, in a sense, it it reflects back to us who we are, right? Mm-hmm. But if we're in a situation like a relationship, and we have the same kind of limitations that are presenting themselves, we can learn from the rock climbing situation to focus on what we can control so that when we are in something that's more dynamic, like a relationship, then we can make sure that we're focusing on what we can control, which is ourselves, right? 
and direct a conversation and a argument or a discussion, whatever it is, toward something where we can solve that problem together. So it helps us understand uh, how we can use our attention in this really uh, kind of a clean situation in climbing and then bring it back into something that seems more muddy. So how do, uh, how do we get in touch with you? Uh, the website is warriorsway.com and you know phone numbers and email addresses and stuff like that are on there. Uh, people can go to the website and uh, sign up for our email list to get uh, weekly uh, free training updates, mm-hmm. either like our, our training schedule, but I also uh, send out weekly uh, training tips. And so they could do that. And uh, we have, like it's, like we talked about, we have eight trainers across the U.S. and working on, you know, training more, you know, as the time goes on. But you could, people that are in certain areas, you know, there there might be a trainer that's close closer to them mm-hmm. so they don't have to travel so far to to be able to get the training. All right, well, thanks for sitting down. I know this has been really fascinating, actually. And, and mm-hmm. uh, I read the book. It was quite a long time ago. And took certain things from it, but I don't think I ever really did the discipline to change my climbing all that much. Although I do think about many of the things in terms of, of stopping and thinking even today. And I read, read yeah. the book quite some time ago, but, uh, but yeah, it's just really interesting. And, and I think I need to, I think I need to join you at one of these, uh, one of these. Yeah. We'd love to have you. Actually. The, the thing is like when, when you read the book or the books, you get an intellectual understanding mm-hmm. of the material, right? And we've been talking about this all this whole hour. Um, taking training, students many times say, oh, I learned something different than I thought I would. You know, they might have read the book and they have a certain understanding of what motivation might be or focusing their attention. But when they actually go through the training with a qualified instructor, then they experience what it's like to apply the material. So. One thing that we constantly say in the training is we know something when we experience it, not before. All right. Well, thanks for sitting down, Arno. And uh, I'm so glad that you've been successful with this and brought it to climbing because I think it's something that most climbers know is out there. It's, it's on the tip of our tongues all the time. So I appreciate that. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, thanks for listening. Hope you found that one useful, like in a practical way. I think there's some stuff you can pull out and start using on climbs right away. And man, I just love that attention idea because aside from the movement and how to you know, climb better, being attentive, but it's when you let your attention down is when you blow it and people get hurt. So yeah, I think one of the great things about climbing is it demands your attention. We can focus keep our minds clear and anything that you could do to kind of hone that down seems like a good idea so remember if you want to check out what arno's got going on his website is warriorsway.com you can find out about training sessions how to get involved in some practical training from arno or from one of his trainers also you can buy his books there the rock warriors way as well as espresso lessons and really interestingly when i say check your knot at the end of these episodes i do mean that literally check your knot look down at it before you start climbing but really i'm also just trying to tell you to pay attention to the little things 
pay attention to the signals, to your belayer, to the knots, all that stuff. If you keep paying attention, I mean, the safety part of the climbing is actually really simple. It's a pretty simple system, really. But you let your guard down, you start letting your mind wander, you skip some steps. And of course, that's when the shit hits the fan. So folks, pay attention like your life depends upon it, because that's also pretty literal right there. And of course, check your knot. How did it feel to you? Let me think. Don't think. Feel. It is like a finger pointing away to the moon. Don't concentrate on the finger or you will miss all that heavenly glory. (laughs) 